people need a few basic things, right? They need food, they need shelter, they need like clothing. And I would also add that like human connection, right? In community. So when you start creating laws and policies and environments for people and they're not able to get the basic things like housing, what, what it does to a person, it makes them desperate. So it's not that people are necessarily recreating the same crime. They're now having to commit other crimes because they can't get into housing that's supposed, that's supposed to be available because they don't have a drug or alcohol addiction or because they're over full or because of some other thing that they're just not allowed to live there, right? Register or not, that's kind of, when you take away humans' basic need of just having shelter, like their safety, I just don't know how you expect people to be able to thrive. Like it just doesn't, on a basic level, like you don't need to understand anything else. It doesn't make sense. That's Brittany Lee from the organization Ex-Incarcerated People Organizing, or EXPO. She has been collecting information to document the challenges facing those returning from prison to better be able to advocate on their behalf. Before I got to this apartment, I was in a halfway house. And after the halfway house, I went to a, um, basically a TOP. And through that period of time, you have to find housing. And I was not able to find any housing. This was every day. So, so you know, it wasn't just like once, twice. It wasn't just like a month or two months, right? Every day, I would get let out of Dane County Jail. They would let me go look for housing and employment. At 5.30, I would have to report back to Dane County Jail. I would have to report to the PO, and the PO would take me in so that I could be in the county jail. Now, mind you, we're utilizing the county jail now for a whole... I have no crimes, no violations, no anything. I just don't have a place to live. So now we're using, we're using the county jail for housing too. That's just things to think about. You're listening to the Justified Anger podcast. We are gonna be hearing from Aaron Hicks throughout this series as he shares his experience with electronic monitoring. He has to wear the ankle monitor for the rest of his life unless he wants to leave his family and the state that he calls home. This is Eli Steenlich. I'm Aaron Hicks, and you're about to hear some Justified Anger. I really want to convey more than anything else, anything they want to do, anything you think of that they want to do, they can do anything. If they want to, I mean, if they want to walk in here and literally pull guns out and shoot everybody in this house, I can guarantee, despite how bad it may look, they're gonna be like, well, look at his record and look at these things. And even though I'm not on none of that, it don't even matter. They can literally come in here and do whatever their minds think of and it will be justifiable. But Aaron, why, why are they able to do whatever they want? Tell me more. They're able to do, because there's no checks and balances. Either it's pretty much either you on a team and you covered or you on the outside of that and they can do whatever they want. To. The goal of electronic monitoring is public safety and community integration. 
The reality of electronic monitoring paints a much different picture, though. Problems and failures with technology point to inconsistent location monitoring and major interruptions to a simulation back into the community. The Department of Corrections in Wisconsin can hold people for up to three days for any case of tampering or location discrepancy. What is the impact of this time? Even if the person is eventually found to be not responsible for a violation, it is commonly documented that people have lost jobs, relationships, housing, and been met with the stigma of repeated jail time. How do you establish a normal and productive life if circumstances out of your control hinder your progress? In one person's experience, they were jailed for five days for being located by a library for an hour when they had actually just drove past the library with their roommate driving and not staying at the location. This is an example of the kind of inaccuracies that can still happen with GPS technology. When I came home, what they told me was, you can't live near a park, a church, a daycare. Like, it's so many amount of feet, right? Like a couple yeah. hundred feet or whatever the case may be. Yep. So, since we utilized the camera. I was speaking with Aaron over a video call. So he picked up his camera and took it to the window to make sure that I could see his point of view from his apartment. That's where the church is, directly across the street. Hmm. Down the street, I can't show you, but there's yeah. a park a block away. It's a, it's a park right down the street from where I'm at. Mm -hmm. it's a, to my left is a park right here. And straight across, a block up, there's a daycare. Now, why is that super important? Because the importance of what I'm sharing with you is what they're really saying, I need you to understand their language because they're telling you these are the places that you can't live next to, specifically if you have a sex offense. However, mm -hmm. you can live in these areas as long as these are basically ghettos. Then you can live next to a park, then you can live next. I'm right by the church, all the above. I've been here since 2011. Yeah. Same apartment, so on and so forth. So I just wanted to throw that in there because they're not really saying you can't do these things. You just can't. Like if it's a nice neighborhood, like if it's a Maple Bluff, if it's over on Williamson, any of that, you, you can't go there, period. That's what they're saying. So when they be talking about community, those are... Communities, you have to ask questions. What community are you referring to? No, when they get to talking about urban and any of that, they really just saying black people, so on and so forth. That's all code or what I would say, you know, dog whistles. That's when a person calls out, this is what you're really saying because language is power. So could you explain a little bit how they specify that? Do you remember how they make that distinction? Yeah, so you know? they don't. They don't state it. And the reason they don't state it because it would be illegal. The greatest lie that is consistently told to people are things that actually no longer exist or didn't. They were never really policies. People were just told something and then they were just expected to follow that and like no one challenged it. So that's where I think you're starting to see kind of this change in the movement now is getting people to be able to advocate for themselves and having like family members like that's a lot of what 
I've really focused on in my career is like educating folks on like what POs can and can't do, but specifically doing it through family members Hmm. and friends because it comes a lot different when you have someone who's not in the mix coming and saying hey like i read this whole policy and this is not real or like what city ordinance are you referring to and a lot of it you find out is up to discretion but when people aren't on paper anymore there's like not a lot of the rules that people are told like what like aaron that's just not there's no ordinance in dane county that he can't it's more of a frowned upon um <laughs> or for him it may be different with him being in gps that like he's he needs to be mindful how close he gets to certain places the living situation is different county by county so certain things they'll never verbally say but if you look we understand we don't we know what people do not based on what they say we watch what they do your actions is display to me what you what you're really saying I don't care what comes out of your mouth. I know what you're doing, not because of what you say. I know what you're doing based on the things that you do. So, for example, I had a roommate when I was here. And short story, he didn't want me to come back here. So, ultimately, I had nowhere to go. And for me, that means going to jail. So, I had to sit in jail until I can find another place to live. Mm. Immediately, one of my one of my professors, she was like, well, you can come stay here. At least you'll be out of jail and we'll figure the rest out. Yeah. So she totally told me I could come there, so on and so forth. When they were, when it was time to make a decision to let me out to say, can I come live over there? They immediately say, no, you can't live over there. You can't go there. Um, there's a park right here. There's this, that, and the other. Ultimately, I had to stay in jail. I couldn't come out. Right. But but my point behind what I'm sharing with you is they never said you can't. Well, they are saying you can't be by parks, church and all the above. However, why is it no issue here? And and I'm right across the street from the church. I'm right next to a park, both ways, both directions. And a daycare is literally, you know, one block away from me. So that's what I mean when I'm just when I'm sharing with you how they say certain things. But it's only applicable if, in fact, basically, if I'm moving into some type of where it's primarily white people at. So so basically, just to understand how that would work is maybe if you were wanting to live in a certain place, right? Like you said, Mm -hmm. I want to get this apartment or whatever, this house. You would have to sort of get approval for that, right? That's correct. And so for whatever reason, they they approve this apartment. But if you try, if you said, no, I, you know, I want to live in this neighborhood that's primarily white, they would just happen to be like, no, you're close to, you know, no. parks and stuff. Is that and what you're saying? That's how it works. That's when they will enforce. Mm-hmm. That's when they will enforce those rules and regulations. According to James Kilgore, Exclusion zones should only be used in rare instances and applied on a case-by-case basis. Present practice leads to restrictions that often make it unreasonably difficult for a person on a monitor to find housing or employment. Moreover, the zones create the potential for technological segregation of urban areas. The creation of race and class-based skid rows and gated communities with boundaries policed by tracking devices and other forms of technological surveillance. Now, what's interesting is 
if you live in a impoverished community, they don't have a problem with you being next to a church, daycare, school, you know, all parks, any of those things. According to Michelle Alexander, author of The New Jim Crow, a growing number of scholars and activists predict that e-gentrification is where we're headed as entire communities become trapped in digital prisons that keep them locked out of neighborhoods where jobs and opportunity can be found. This reminded me of a story Aaron once told me about a friend he had met through their volunteering with Aaron's re-entry program for men at Nehemiah. Aaron said that he had asked his friend what it was like to live in the Maple Bluff neighborhood of Madison because he had never spent time in that area of the city. So his friend did invite him to his house to join him and his wife for dinner. Aaron said he took this opportunity to just explore the neighborhood because he had often felt kept out of neighborhoods like Maple Bluff, as he would be rejected to live in such a neighborhood outright, although he could now visit. If in fact, you know, it's about helping people move forward and, you know, changing the narrative, you know, why, why do we put these stipulations and why Specifically, more than anything, why is it okay as long as I'm on, you know, Britta, I can live by, you know, a church, a park, a school um, because of this area and because there's a lot of, you know, gun violence and drugs and so on and so forth. There's no issue with that at all. But if, in fact, you move into an area that could be a little bit more nicer, where a lot of these things are not happening, um, then it's an issue. From the outside, it can sometimes seem extreme when people of color claim that they are stuck in certain neighborhoods of a city, locking them into cycles of poverty, crime, and incarceration. But Aaron's experience with housing options shows that, however unofficial, people of color are more likely to be limited in their opportunities because of housing. Because so much is left to the discretion of supervisors, this trend can be hard to quantify, though. Whether we want to acknowledge it or not, we can all recognize differences in the neighborhoods of cities and the opportunity for a healthy livelihood. And I'm sure it's happened to a multitude of people. I don't know if everybody is conscious to it. However, you do see, you know, these standards definitely, you know, are very one-sided. And does that, has that prevented you from seeking out somewhere else to live like even if you if you've thought about like maybe i'd like to get a different place and and has it dissuaded you from even attempting to to look into that because because of the uh, roadblocks you ran into before well well now because i'm off supervision like a lot of that stuff does not apply to me i won't say all you know there's still some things that still does apply to me like i still have to register um, that type of stuff, but as far as where I move and live, no, they don't have they don't have restraint. Right. But 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 I can tell you this. So for example, when I was married, I was at my wife's house for like five days. And then I got a letter with a picture, like a GPS picture, saying you've been over her house too many days, you need to go back to your apartment. And this is while I was no longer on any supervision at all. Like I, 
you know, like I can't come over to your house for four days um, and hang out, stay the night. Um, if I did, then they would say that you got to report back to where you, you know, because they saying they saying basically saying you changing residence. You could possibly be changing residence, that type of stuff. Just to clarify that last situation you were talking about, that wasn't a written restriction that they provided you with. They were just sort of giving you that warning. I wonder what would happen if you tried to push back against that. In any type of pushback, and I can show it all to you. So when you're done with supervision, there is no more paper, there's no more rules, regulations. So then they put this bracelet on you, but the bracelet does not come with any rules and regulations either. However, you're supposed to, I don't know how you're supposed to know, but you're supposed to know. A lot of people, again, do not feel like they can challenge someone who's telling them rules. So they're told what they can't do and they just accept it. And it isn't until I get a phone call where I'm like, can you just send me your rules? Let me just take a look at them. And I'm like, have you read these? Do you understand them? Yeah, but they told me. I'm like, but it's not written down. Even when your PO says you can do something, you should get it written down. You, It sucks to sometimes play this like back and forth paper trail. But I mean, when your liberty's at, at cost, you should do that. The use of electronic monitoring in relation to geography can all lead to other racial implications. It's easy to think that because this system is based on pure GPS data, that it is race neutral and unbiased. Some argue that it is removing the human bias formally involved and simply giving more freedom to individuals. But because the data and algorithms that this system of tracking is based on are already part of institutional racism, the results are just new forms of segregation and gentrification. The exclusion zones, whether official or not, are alternatively forming deep grooves into a city's landscape along racial, economical, and class-based lines. History simply repeats itself as perceived senses of new freedom actually get spun into new forms of control and restrictions. Electronic monitoring is framed by its ability to let people go home and be with their families, have a normal life, but in reality it often puts the burden back on the individual. It can create more obstacles and reinforce old routines by the limiting of resources and opportunity for success. We have heard how Aaron, along with many others, could not return to the home they knew or start fresh even with help offered. With the rules being so discriminatory, how can a person know how to move forward? It is well documented that people are put in jail for their monitor being triggered even when they are found to be where they are supposed to be. I want to go back to starting where I really learned this was an issue because I think that's really important, was when I started working at EMI doing the housing. And I remembered this quote, um, which was like, um, you teach people how to treat you. And the, and the reason I think that's really important is when you put people in housing, how you treat them within the housing and what you provide for them really, really matters. And I really kept that close to me of like, well, then we need to paint things. We need things to look good. So as I came through my journey, one of the hardest, one of the hardest things I have watched is people wanting to find housing. And the, the biggest struggle I think of this particular individual was he'd been having, he'd been having issues. 
just due to some of the, you know, the crimes that he was committed of that were sexual in nature. He never, I mean, he never touched an individual, but child pornography is a crime nonetheless. I don't say that it's a victimless crime, which some people like to say that it is, but it's not. When he was coming out, I mean, I was contacted by by some some friends and family members of his that were like, hey, we, we don't know what to do. You know, he was supposed to come home and stay with me. And now the, P, the PO is saying he can't. And I was like, well, what's the reason? And they're like, oh, there's a church. And I said, the church doesn't disqualify someone from living next to you. Like, does this church have a school? No. So I get on Google Maps and I look and on the opposite side of the church, which is where like the house is. So trying to like frame this, like if you're looking outside the house, all you see is the church. On the other side where you can't see is the smallest playground I think I've ever seen. (laughs) And it literally has like stairs and a slide. And they said because of that, he wasn't able to live there because um, children could frequent that small playground. I'm like, okay, this, this isn't making sense to me. And on top of that, he had a whole bunch of other stuff that was like, his PO wouldn't allow him to have a chaperone. So he really couldn't go anywhere. Um, She was not allowing him to have certain jobs, even though they had nothing to do with his crime. He also wasn't allowed to use the internet. So think about trying to find a job without having the internet. It was such a tragic story because he couldn't find literally anywhere to live. So he was stuck in a temporary living situation though with a whole bunch of other people who are also on the registry which in and of itself is stressful so you come out of prison to go be with a bunch of other people and we just found out that like it wasn't he was just losing it you know what i mean at that point he'd been out and he's just like they just want me to go back to prison and that's what i'm gonna do so he lost it like and he just you know just went on the internet and did things and it's just like man like what a sucky situation that like probably most of this could have been prevented had he had just a place to stay um and had people that he like he could go to church with like some of the basic things like that would have been helpful at least on his journey to keep his mind right yeah and and I mean I wish that could be like the only story I could tell you but it's been you know people are stuck living living in certain communities because they have to. I asked Brittany, I asked Brittany what she thinks, what she thinks people, people can do to help those returning from prison to thrive in a healthy living environment. I asked Brittany what she thinks people can do. I think helping people get housing in any capacity, like working with landlords, having somebody else say, hey, like we're okay with this person living here. I've done that a lot and other people on my team where we help other people form relationships with where they want to live in talking to the other folks of what their actual concerns are and like all also how to not be, you know, how to have that in a space that's normal. Thanks for listening to the Justified Anger podcast. Keep listening as we share more stories around the experience of electronic monitoring and explore the issues involved. Special thanks to Aaron Hicks, Brittany Lee, and Kamika Patel.